Welcome back to the Matters Podcast, brought to you by Clio, the world's leading provider of cloud-based legal software. I'm Nefer McDonald, Affinity Partnerships Manager here at Clio. And I'm Jack Newton, Clio's co-founder and CEO. For season two of Matters, we're focusing on client-centered lawyering, which is a concept that can seem daunting to law firms, but one that is critical for them to understand in order to survive. On our last episode, we introduced this idea of client-centered lawyering, and we dove a little deeper into some concepts in Jack's book, The Client-Centered Law Firm. Today, we're pulling back a little to look at the history of legal service delivery to try to find the answer to this question. Why has the legal industry been hesitant to move to a client-centered service model? It's a great question. As the needs and expectations of legal clients have changed drastically over the past two decades, law firms haven't changed as quickly. By and large, lawyers are risk-averse, and as a result, most law firms have hesitated to adopt new practices and technologies that shake up the status quo. It's a generalization, but in most cases it's true. In the legal profession, being risk-averse is really a part of the package. Lawyers are trained experts in risk aversion. You're absolutely right. And that's something I spoke to our first guest about. Mitch Kowalski is a thought leader, a legal operations advisor, a Fast Case 50 Innovation Award honoree, and the author of the books, The Great Legal Reformation and Avoiding Extinction, Reimagining Legal Services for the 21st Century. He says this risk aversion we see in lawyers is really just built into the way they are trained and the way they operate. Here's Mitch. If you're a librarian, you want to keep all the books nice and neat and available and all this stuff. People start taking books out of the library. That kind of freaks you out because then you don't know where stuff is, right? So it's ingrained in, in all the things that we do, no matter what we do. Look at COVID, right? The chief medical officers are saying, just shut everything down, right? It's like, sure, but what are the spinoffs of that? Right, where where are that you know where are the mental health issues, where are the economic issues? So, you know, we're all trained in whatever discipline we're trained in is to be very narrowly focused on on whatever it is that that we're being trained to do, and most of that is to prevent bad things from happening. So, it's it's just a natural option. I don't think it's it's only with lawyers. I think it's there's a lot of professions and a lot of areas out there that that's how we're trained. So how can this risk aversion stifle change and progress in the legal industry? And, and maybe you could give some examples of, of where that might be happening. It makes us see change as something scary, as, as opposed to something that is a possible opportunity for us to do things better. So it, it ingrains a sense of scariness um, to anything new, you know, also, lawyers always look backwards, they don't look forwards, right? It's, it is precedent-based. What happened before, what worked before, and that's what I'm going to do as opposed to saying, what could possibly be good about changing things up? And so, as a result, um, we, we stay in the same zone. That's our comfort zone. We never break out of the comfort zone because going outside the comfort zone is scary. It's unknown. Unknown things are bad. Are there specific areas you see this this risk aversion and this this precedent driven behavior impeding law firms' ability to make progress? Yeah, mostly on the business ends ends of things, right? So so if we think of law as a business, 
we think that, um, you know, as a business owner, you know, as a business owner and people who are listening who are business owners, that you're always looking to keep some kind of competitive advantage, right? How do I keep ahead of the competition? What can I do differently? How can I make myself more unique? How can I create a more unique client experience for people who are going to come to me? And that, um, that just doesn't happen in, in law. Law competes on I'm the best lawyer from a quality perspective, as opposed to I give, I'm creating a different business experience. And so that's, that's the main area. And do you think there's a way we can separate this, the legal aspect of being so strongly precedent driven from the, the business perspective where, where if anything, if lawyers want to evolve and progress, they should almost definitively not be precedent driven in any way. We don't want to be doing law the way we've been doing it in the past. How, how do we decouple those, those two, those two mindsets? Yeah, I, I, I think the obvious answer is don't have lawyers run the business under your firm, right? Have the lawyers do the lawyer stuff and, and have people who are more business minded, business trained, business oriented, work on the delivery aspects of, of what lawyers are trying to do. Uh, because I don't think, I, I think it's just too ingrained and there are too many lawyers who think that way to have, um, to, to see like a massive breakout in the industry. And, and Mitch, this might be a flavor of the same question, but uh, I'll, I'll ask it and just see if you have a slightly different take on it. How do you feel legal services need to be reimagined, as you say in your book, in order for lawyers to avoid extinction? Yeah, it, it, again, it, a variation on the same theme is look at it as a business. Look at it from, so what would I do as a business owner? Or let's make it even easier. If I didn't know what a law firm was, was supposed to look like, what, how would I deliver legal services? And I think that's, that's probably um, a really good starting point if you're a lawyer saying, okay, let's forget about what I know. What would, I, what would I do if I didn't know what I was supposed to do? How would I approach this? And, you know, what can I look at in other industries that can help me? How are other people delivering similar kinds of services? And we're a service industry, so there's all sorts of services that you look, can look at in terms of delivery. And, and that um, will go a long way. Mitch's idea here to flip the lens on the legal industry is such a good one. I really do think if firms did what he's saying and looked at their business as though they didn't know what a law firm was supposed to look like, they'd be more open to change. And they'd be more successful. But it's not easy. Change is scary. And for an industry that is precedent-based by nature, even more so, lawyers are trained to look at the past more than the present or the future, which works for knowing case law but also makes it really easy to stick to your comfort zone. So other than reading your book, what do firms need to be doing differently? You know, I think that question is the perfect segue into the conversation I had with Tiffany Graves, an accomplished attorney, former nonprofit executive, and visionary leader with over 20 years of experience advocating for marginalized children, individuals, and families. Tiffany currently serves as pro bono counsel at Bradley, a large national law firm. When I asked Tiffany why she thinks the legal industry has been so slow to innovate, she said lawyers haven't just been hesitant to change how they deliver service, they're hesitant about change in general. 
Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with some fear. You know, when I think about my position as pro bono counsel, one of my biggest struggles is getting lawyers to take on matters that are outside of their regular practice areas. Um, and even though I work with very smart and capable people who can, you know, sort of work on a legal matter and figure out how to get a resolution, really regardless of the topic, um, when you give them something that's outside of their practice area, they freak out about it. And they're like, I don't know if I want to take this on. I don't know if this is something that I can competently do. Um, and obviously, competence is always a concern. I don't want to minimize that. Um, but I think a lot of it is just a fear of change and adapting to changing times and, and changing ways of doing business. Uh, and I think that is one of the things that has made the industry so slow to, to innovate. Um, it's a desire to keep things as they are. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, but the problem is it is broke and it does need fixing. Um, so I think a lot of it is just um, just a real fear and hesitancy to do the things that can really move us forward as an industry. In addition to maybe this inertia that you see in, in potentially lawyers' mindsets around, around innovation and, and the need for change or lack thereof, are, are there institutional obstacles and barriers that you, you think the, the rest of the law firm machine is, is, is putting, or sorry, the legal industry machine is putting the way in the way of innovation? Yeah, I think there are regulations that are really designed to keep lawyers in and everyone else out. Um, and I certainly know in my work, I function better when I have everyone on board, legal professionals and non-legal professionals uh, helping me do what I do. So I think um, you know, our regulations are something that we constantly need to examine. And some states are doing a really good job of looking at how can we improve access to all and what will that mean for our regulations and rules as they are now. Um, so I think a lot of it sort of comes down to um, how we regulate the industry, how we regulate the practice of law. Um, those are institutional barriers that unfortunately have not led to the type of innovation that we really need to be doing as a profession. Let's talk for a moment about client-centeredness. What is the current state of client-centeredness in legal? And I, I'm curious if you've seen some shifts in terms of how client-centered lawyers and law firms are over the course of your career. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting question and concept. Um, you know, I think generally speaking, firms have viewed client-centered approaches to what we do as, you know, as long as the client seems happy and is paying our bills, I guess we're doing everything right. Um, and engaging the clients in real conversations about what's working, what's not, how are we communicating with each other, and is that working for you? Um, how am I making it easy for us to help you resolve your legal issues uh, and finding ways to really deepen and cultivate the relationships that we have with our clients is frankly something that we're not used to doing. Um, and the firms that are doing it well are the ones who are winning business and retaining clients uh, in ways that are much better than folks uh, who, are, who are not taking those approaches. Um, again, sort of as pro bono counsel, I think of, of my role as one where I'm able to expose attorneys to true client-centered approaches. When you take on a pro bono matter, typically for an individual client, that client is the person that you're focusing on. 
that client is the person, you know, that you're showing empathy to in their situation and helping them resolve their legal issue. They're your, your sole focus. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, if we approached our, our, our paying clients the same way that we do our pro bono clients in the sense that, you know, they are focused, they're the folks that we're really showing um, some level of, of empathy and compassion toward. They're the folks that we really want to hear and be attentive to with respect to their needs. If we use that same approach across um, across to our, our billing clients, I think I think we would find our relationships to be a lot better and certainly more client centered. And, and at a macro level, do you feel like the more traditional lawyer centered model is still the the prevalent model that you see in in both lawyers and, and law firms in terms of their mindset? I think that is the case. I really do. Um, you know, I think using the example of what we're going through right now, this global pandemic, um, I think a lot of firms and lawyers have really had to think about how they are interrelating with their clients. Um, we've had to do a whole lot more personal outreach to clients. How are you doing? How's your family doing? How are you coping with what's happening in the world? In some ways, it's a shame that it took a pandemic for us to really have personal relationships with these people that we work with and we try to help resolve legal issues. But maybe a silver lining in all of this is that we are thinking about who are these people? Let's get to know these people that we're actually you know, doing things for and working so closely with on often very complex matters and issues. Um, so I think that's something that's kind of good that's come out of this and has made us as lawyers think beyond this sort of traditional lawyer-centered approach to one that's more focused on our clients and their needs and where they are right now. And when, when you look at the the efforts and progress, and as you mentioned, we've seen some, especially over the, the course of COVID-19 and, and the, the impacts the pandemic has had on, on both consumers and lawyers, it feels like we're being pulled in, in, the, in a more client-centered direction. Can you talk about some of the progress you've seen and, and what some, some of the successes you might consider uh, the, the, the client-centered mindset as ha having helped drive in the industry? Sure. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're certainly for-profit institutions, um, but I also think that, that law firms are thinking about fee structures and what those need to look like and engaging more with clients about, you know, is what we do in terms of billing working for you? And if not, let's have a conversation about it. Um, so I think sort of from a billing standpoint, um, there's, there's more conversation around what's going to work um, for, for our clients. And that does put the clients at the center of the conversation and doesn't just allow us to rely on this is how we bill you and this is what you kind of have to deal with. Um, so I think that makes it more client centered, um, which is helpful uh, from a law firm culture standpoint. You know, firms have had to work very intentionally to feel like everyone is included uh, even more over the last year or so. Uh, and that's raised questions of morale and what are we doing to retain attorneys? What are we doing to make sure that they're equipped to interact with clients in successful ways? I've noticed at my firm much more um, initiatives around business and client development, but in a more client-centered way, um, you know, more than just, you know, pitches to clients, but trying to build relationships, 
you know, reaching out, hey, you know, I would love to sort of talk with you about some of the things we're doing when it's convenient for you, you know, just to sort of hear more about what your needs are and how we can satisfy them. Um, but in a more putting the client at the center way um, than it's traditionally been done. So I think that's happening. Um, you know, clients are asking more questions about things like inclusion and diversity uh, and what are you doing in your community? Trying to be responsive to those things is something that I think has also been a real shift, um, not just to, to sort of make it look good, but to actually be uh, intentional and proactive about hiring practices. You know, who, who are the talent that we're bringing in that will be responsive to the needs of clients? If they're raising these inclusion and diversity concerns um, for clients who are active in their communities, let's make sure that we have talent on board that wants to be involved, be it pro bono or community service. So I think there's more of a view toward, you know, it's no longer about us and what's going to work for us at this firm, but our clients uh, and how we can really find ways to satisfy their needs and really deepen the relationships we have with them. Tiffany's comparison to how lawyers treat their pro bono clients as opposed to their paid clients is such a great example of the difference here. When lawyers come from a place of empathy and compassion, they will naturally start listening to their clients more closely, and that will pay off for the firm. Sure, it makes total sense. When you're listening and understanding your clients, you're going to do a better job of meeting the needs they've expressed. Because if you ask them, they will tell you how to best serve them but you have to be willing to ask the question. Absolutely. But like we've talked about, making that change in an industry like this feels like a risk. And a lot of lawyers actually got into this business because they aren't risk takers by nature. You spoke to Bill Henderson about that, right? I did. And our listeners might remember Bill from episode one of this season. He's the Stephen F. Burns Professor of Law at Indiana University. And he was named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America by the National Law Journal. Bill says that people who end up being counselors tend to be convergent black and white thinkers, whereas people who tend to be risk takers often enter into the business world. There's this self-selection effect where uh, really gifted people that are, that are convergent thinkers, they're very good at identifying what's black, what's white, and kind of cabining the gray. They are the ones that typically become uh, uh, counselors. And, and by and large, they take that charge pretty seriously. They're trying to avoid bad outcomes for their clients, and it's always at the top of their uh, uh, list. I think that one of the difficulties that this creates uh, for, for lawyers as business people is we're really trying to control and manage, and, and well, I wish we were quantifying risk, but we're trying to identify and manage risk. We skip the step of quantifying it, because if we quantify it, it'd get a little bit easier. And we're just trying to avoid a bad outcome without any sense of probability for, 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 for what the likelihood of that bad outcome is. And remember, and Jack, you know this as good as anybody, it's like risk is how you make money in business, you know, uh, and you have to take some uh, risk. And just avoiding risk when you can get paid by the hour to do it is a fine way to make a living, but it's not a, way, a recipe to build a business. And so, um, you know, some of the really interesting literature on, uh, on in-house counsel have talked about how in-house counsel that uh, basically the department of no, their careers kind of uh, kind of sabotage. And, and it really the, 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 the lawyers that do well as in-house counsel learn to manage, identify, manage, and quantify risk. So um, we're, we're just kind of a lack of sophistication in this. 
and, and, and Bill, you talk about this interplay maybe of, you know, how risk aversion has taken hold in the way lawyers think about legal situations and how that translates maybe to their behavior as a as a business person. And mitigating risk in a legal contract is one thing, but letting that same thinking bleed through into how you run your business, like you said, is is maybe a recipe for disaster, especially when you're in a rapidly changing environment. Can, can you talk about some of the ways that this risk aversion that, that we see in so many lawyer mindsets presents a, a huge risk to the both individual law firm and maybe the industry in general in its ability to adapt to change? It basically boils down to operant uh, conditioning. If, you, if you're paid very well to identify and manage uh, risk, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna prize that ability, and we have a whole generation of people that have made a, a pretty good living uh, identifying and uh, managing risk without being particularly uh, sophisticated uh, uh, in it. And so, uh, and so, and I see this over and over again. I'll give you, a, I'll give you a good example. Well, back maybe ten years ago, one of the big managed services providers was was doing a big engagement with a well-known. Uh, law firm, and the uh, and the and the the reason why this engagement came about is this the uh, is the is the litigation group of this well-known national law firm was getting pushback from clients saying, "Hey, your discovery bills are too high. Can you do something about this?" And they cut a managed service deal to basically put in a bunch of uh, e-discovery staff attorney lawyers that were basically employees of this uh, managed service. Provider and uh, the head of this uh, of this you know pretty successful company that's still around uh, uh, got an ethics opinion saying you know you can split fees here we can actually you can get a you can get a skim of, of what we're uh, doing here so that uh, so that you know you're, you're giving your, your clients a bargain here but we can split the profit with you and the lawyers just basically waved them away so now we're not interested in this so like the practice group leaders and the reason being is is that overwhelmingly. They just wanted they just wanted one less obstacle in the way of collecting six hundred and fifty dollars an hour their their rate here and and that's really how they thought about it and I think that 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 to me was such a clear example of of lawyers not of being basically tradesmen or or or, or artisans as opposed to business people because Jack. I mean, uh, you're a business person, and I think uh, your employees are business people. Isn't the goal to build a product and sit on your ass and collect money? I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, here, I mean, that's that's what a business person is trying to do. They're trying to build something and, and, and build their margin and, and and delight customers and and have operational excellence. And, and but it's at the at the end of the day, here, you're a capital owner, and you're trying to uh, you're trying to allocate capital to to satisfy to to to, to basically make money overwhelmingly lawyers think about selling their time. And this is where one of the real, real, real uh, remarkable things of where we're at circa 2021. There's, there's, there's many examples that I can point them to you where people have, people say, wow, that guy's a partner at such and such a law firm. He makes $5 million a year. We're beginning to collect a few uh, people that work in the legal space that are actually creating much more, much, much vastly more, enterprise wealth and vastly more personal wealth because they they thought about business people as opposed to basically being the top paid by the hour legal technician and i just think that that that, that we have a, we have a whole generation of people that just can't get their head around 
that pre-existing hierarchy that, you know, wow, that's an elite lawyer that can, they can sell their time for $1,500 an hour. And, and maybe tell me a bit more about driving that mindset shift, Bill. You're, you're the co-founder of the Institute for the Future of Law Practice, or IFLIP. And, so, and that's a nonprofit that designs and delivers curricula for training T-shaped legal professionals, where you're combining expertise around data, process, technology, design principles, and, and business into that curricula. Tell me more about that. In terms of the difference between the two, we're, le- we're, 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 we're what's what's happening now. I think Clio and many other companies are a part of this. Is we're we're leaving a a, a, a an industry of one to one consultative services that that at least at the high end was a pure credence good market. What I mean by that is like it's hard to evaluate is that good legal service or bad legal service. Well, you know the customer in a in a in a in a kind of will could see if you're courteous or they could see if you're uh, if you got the stuff on time, or if they felt like they got value, but 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 in, in, as, as, as legal matters get more sophisticated, we, we we basically are looking for markers of well, the people who did the work were, were very elite. They went to elite law schools, and so and so that's where the top of the market has largely been is uh, it's a credence good where, where where you look for markers of prestige. In the world we're entering into, and this is very much a part of the Institute for the Future Law Practice or IFLIP. It's this. We're just. It's outcomes. It's 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 it's. it's is this product any good? Is this solution any workable? And we and, and it's much easier to, to to measure whether we got value or not here. And the advantage of that here is is that because these these outcomes, these products or solutions are designed, we don't have to overpay for inputs. And so we the inputs, the human capital inputs, are basically are people that can this person do process? Can this person do data? Can this person no technology and we get them together in a team and they build this stuff here and we judge their final product and so it makes education did you learn this it's more like engineering as opposed to uh kind of liberal arts you know here there's there's in in engineering there's no um if you've got an engineering degree it doesn't really matter if you went to mit or or another place pretty much all engineers make the same amount of money or why can they do the work yes or no that's the question. That's the operative thing. Law is going to head in that direction. It's like, have you if you had T-shaped training? Yes or no? Because if you haven't had T-shaped training, you're useless to build a product or a solution. If you've got just legal training, well, we can send you to court. Uh, but but we actually you need there's no, a high IQ is not a substitute for no, knowing how to do a process map or knowing how to code or knowing how to the, the, the basics of data. You either know it or you don't. And so uh, in, in law is largely fall back on academic markers. And so uh, we're headed into this, this market where, 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 where we're going to look more like an engineering profession as opposed to a liberal arts profession. So we've talked a little bit, Bill, about, or maybe a lot about how uh, risk aversion feeds into lack of innovation in the legal industry. Let, let, let's kind of flip it on, on the positive side of the coin. What are some of the greatest innovations you've seen in the legal industry over your career? Oh boy, there, there's so many that are coming online uh, uh, right now, and I think about the market map of like a like 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 a, like a, 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 a there's over a thousand companies or roughly a thousand companies point solutions that it's hard to just pinpoint 
one here. Actually, I, I, I will, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to surprise you. <laughs> I'm going to say that, uh, that the, 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 the one that surprised me the most or the one that continues to stick in my mind is being the most powerful is Paul Cravath, the Cravath system, which was developed by Paul Cravath at the, at the turn of the 20th century. And it was, in a, and, it was a, and it's in the first 12 pages of the second volume of the Cravath, Swain and Moore firm history. But he, he lays out in almost a specification, specification type way what it takes for him to build a system to train lawyers to, to, to do commercial transactions or commercial work well here. And it's a rotation system. Uh, you go through many years. You, he wants people to come from specific law schools. Why? He wants them to have undergraduate uh, training. Uh, uh, he goes through a rotation system, uh, wants to make sure that if, that uh, when, when somebody can no longer be promoted, they're asked to leave the firm and they outplace them at a, at a client. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, perfectly contained human capital system that was so incredibly powerful that eventually got copied by every other New York law firm, then in Boston by Brandeis and Jones Day copied it in Cleveland and it spread throughout the country. Uh, and it was the perfect system uh, to train people for a, a rapidly growing business law uh, type uh, clientele. And, uh, and, and four generations later, we're still in the residue of the crevasse system. We're still collecting coupons on that one. The problem is, is that the lawyers that, that work in these big firms don't have any understanding that there was a human capital system that was installed in that, in the early 20th century. And once it got going here, it had its own momentum. I wanna just give you one more plug to show you how powerful this is. Uh, the uh, the um, uh, 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 relativity, which is which is not your competitor, although maybe someday there will be, because it, because it does very sophisticated uh, uh, practice management or tools for electronic discovery and compliance. Andrew Sega, I got to interview him a few years ago, and uh, relativity's got a terrific evaluation, a totally dominant market niche. And Andrew told me that uh, that his goal when he quit being a consultancy shop and he went into the software business, he wanted to eventually get to become a, a, a $250 million a year company for total revenues. And there was a book that he read called The Breakthrough Company by this consultant named McFarland that, that basically identified how you actually become one of these breakthrough companies. And one of them was just a human capital system. And Andrew, you go back and you look to see what relativity did. They had a competency model. They had a values matrix and they recruited and retained not only their, their line engineers, but their managers. And he hired a chief uh, uh, people officer who was an organizational psychologist. I mean, it's like I, I pointed to this in an article uh, oh, about five years ago, the ABA Journal said, look, here's a crevasse system and here's a one-to-many version of the crevasse system created by this guy named Andrew Sega, who's a, who's a software engineer uh, by training here. But look, it's, it's the same type uh, uh, approach. And, and, uh, and actually, Jack, I'll give a plug for your book that you weren't expecting here. I think that if you're trying to build a client-centric uh, firm here, you know, your book offers a systematic approach toward being client-centric. And you've got to follow these principles like a recipe and have the discipline to make all your decisions from those matrix. But if you do that, it's the discipline of getting everybody rowing in the same direction that creates the value. And so, uh, and so uh, I, I really think those people organized systems 
to this day are the most important. Like software is great here, but uh, but you needed the team to create that software. I mean, Andrew Sega's team created the relativity product. And I mean, yeah, the, the software is great here, but the team is what uh, is, is what drove the value. And to get everybody, you know, who was well-trained, stayed with the organization, you know, to, and I think that he did break his $250 million, you know, thing. He became a breakthrough company. You know, Jack, we've talked a lot on the podcast so far about law firms using technology to create a better experience for the customer, because that's the kind of work we do at Clio. But I really think what Bill adds here sums it up. In the client-centered model, it's about the client and the client's needs being met. But it's also about the team of legal professionals who are driving the service delivery in the right direction. You're exactly right. At the core of what all our guests share today is the idea that the people making decisions within law firms are the people who can drive this change to a client-centered model. They just need to be willing to take the risk and change their way of thinking about the business. So Jack, we've come to the end of the episode, which is where I ask you, what are you taking away from this conversation? What's sticking with you? Well, for me, the main thing we've talked about is how lawyers are risk averse and may hesitate to take the risk of adopting a client-centered approach. But what I think we haven't stressed as much is the risk of not taking a client-centered approach. We often think about the risks of taking a specific course of action, but don't always consider the risks of not taking action. And in this case, there are a lot of those risks. That ties really nicely into what we'll discuss in our next episode, when we'll talk about what's broken in the legal industry and how and why it needs to change in order to meet the needs of the market. I can't wait. Thank you, Nefra, for being an excellent co-host. And thank you to all of you for listening today. This has been a presentation of Season 2 of Matters, based on the client-centered law firm, the best-selling book by Jack Newton. Matters is hosted by Jack Newton and Nefra McDonald, produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and brought to you by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider. Be sure to subscribe to Matters wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit us at clio.com. To read Jack's book, search for The Client-Centered Law Firm wherever you buy your books.